So this is the um, 2000, uh, April 2017 topics in biblical finances. And uh, today we're going to talk about a subject that some of you may not even know is in the Bible, but it is in the Bible and we're going to look at it today. We're going to talk about the wealth transfer. Now you may say, the what? <laughs> the, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you misunderstood what I said, you know. No, you didn't misunderstand what I said. I said the wealth transfer. Maybe you thought you walked into the wrong meeting room and, <laughs> you know, you accidentally got in the wrong, wrong meeting room. No, you're in the right place. We're going to talk about the wealth transfer in the Bible. Let's start in Proverbs 13, 22. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Now I think the amplified translation says, um, and eventually it will come into their hands. Eventually it will come into their hands. The Wycliffe translation says, a sinner's possessions shall be given to the righteous. Uh, God's Word translation says, The wealth of sinners is stored away for a righteous person. Uh, Satan is waging a battle of containment against the body of Christ. And he's not so much uh, interested in driving you backward as he is just containing you at your present financial situation. Uh, you know, Satan um, works through distractions. You remember, well, the, uh, you remember the first Iraq war, I guess. Uh, I, I didn't follow the Iraq war, really. I hardly even knew the Iraq war happened because I hadn't been here very long. And this is when I just began to find out about faith and I was just beginning to get in the Word and find out about the financial part of uh, our inheritance and so forth. And I, I didn't even know anything was happening in the world. I mean, only reason I knew there was a Iraq war is because when I went to work, I occasionally heard people talking about it. I had no television. I had no radio. Uh, certainly, there were no cell phones. I mean, there was no internet. Uh, so, the, I didn't know anything that was going on in the world, hardly. But occasionally, I would hear people talk about the Iraq War. I knew there was a war going on, and I, they had even notified the hospitals that if necessary, you know, injured people could be brought back to the hospital, and so they were kind of had a, a plan 
you know, for that to happen. So I had kind of heard about it through working at the hospital. But um, during the Iraq War, they had what they called, uh, the enemy had what they called SCUD missiles. And in a military term, I don't really know what that means. Some of you may know what it means. But we can use, we can use that uh, spiritually to stand for Satan continually uses distractions. Satan continually uses distractions. And he will fire these missiles into your life to distract you and get you off the word and get you over onto your circumstances and your problems and this is especially true in the area of finances. Uh, you know, you can probably think of several people, uh, you know, that you work with who are not as smart or as qualified as you are and they may make more money than you do. It's all part of Satan's plan to try to contain you in your present financial condition. So the devil doesn't care uh, about how much money unbelievers make. He actually uses them uh, as a reservoir to funnel money to them to keep it away from God and keep it away from Christians and keep it out of the kingdom of God. So it's safe in the hands of unbelievers. So that's why Satan actually uses them to, to use them as a reservoir. He wants to keep God's people in lack, God's work in lack, and therefore Satan's kingdom is not under threat. So you may be comfortable where you are financially. Satan will tell you you're getting along okay. Just don't rock the boat. But if you're not already aware of it, I want you to begin to recognize Satan's strategies to keep you in your present financial level. Satan's worst nightmare is a believer who knows the word, has the money, and will do anything God tells them to do. So we need to uh, increase our knowledge and understanding of the word, get committed to prospering God's way for God's purposes, and be prepared to do whatever the Lord tells us to do with it. So when the more knowledge and understanding you have about healing, the greater uh, level of health you can walk in. And, and that's true about every area of life. Uh, the greater understanding of the word you have about finances, according to the Bible, you're going to walk in a greater level uh, of finances. So we, we're building a foundation of truth that Satan will not be able to contain. And as you gather uh, many biblical principles relating to the financing of the end time harvest and apply them, then your spiritual energy uh, is gonna rise on the inside and move you permanently out of Satan's wall of containment. And those walls of Jericho uh, that he has built up around your finances will begin to fall. So we need to, you know, by the end of today, I want us to be determined to take violent action to bring down this wall of containment and seize the financial power that we have according to the Word of God. 
Uh, as the word builds up in you, line upon line, precept upon precept, uh, it will become so concentrated that you'll begin to be able to take steps to violently break out of Satan's wall of containment. Now, one of the things Satan uses to build a wall around your finances is tradition. Uh, the definition of tradition is a belief or custom handed down from one generation to another. Long established procedure, the handing down of beliefs. The handing down of beliefs from one generation to another. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 7, 9 to the Pharisees and the religious people of that day, he said, you reject or set aside the word of God that you may keep your tradition. And he said, your traditions make the word of God of no effect. And that's, that's right. That's exactly. It indicates that their tradition was more important than God's word. And unfortunately, in parts of the body of Christ, nothing's changed. It's amazing how people want to cling to tradition and set aside the word of God. Uh, they set aside what is primary in order to hang on to what is secondary. Uh, they set aside what's significant and hang on to what's insignificant. In Colossians 2.8, it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So it's going to take a concentration of the word and violent action in your spirit to crush this uh, wall of containment down and break out into God's best. Now, uh, we won't turn here, but you can write down Psalm 9510. I'll just read it to you. Psalm 9510. And it says, Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So uh, for 40 years, Israel prolonged God's best for their lives because they did not know God's ways. It was never God's will for his people to be in slavery in Egypt. But they got off his word, and they forgot what God promised Abraham. And when they forgot what God promised to Abraham, it was easy for their enemies to uh, dominate them and put them into bondage and slavery. Religion replaced the word of God with traditions of men, and it was easy for Satan to deceive the body of Christ where finances are concerned and to keep us out of God's best and keep the church powerless and ineffective. Now let's turn back to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And this is uh, when Israel was in Egypt in slavery. And verse 
5 uh, says, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for an heritage. I am the Lord. Notice verse 6. He says, I am the Lord. Verse 7, ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 8, I am the Lord. Do you think he's trying to tell them something? <laughs> three times in three verses, I am the Lord. And, and I'm going to do this. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. So, Egypt, it can represent a number of things in the Bible. It can represent traditions old ways of thinking it represents the world system of money and finances uh, it, it, it represents the world in general uh, you know people who are do not have a covenant with God people who don't know God uh, and it also represents the land of not enough which is where Israel was living at the time now over in chapter 13 of Exodus it says verse 3 and this is speaking of the Passover Moses said to the people remember this day in which ye came out from Egypt out of the house of bondage uh, by strength of hand the Lord brought you out from this place and verse 14 says it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this that thou shalt say unto him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. Verse 9 says, For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. So the hand of the Lord brought them out. Now, legally, God has brought us, the body of Christ, out of Egypt, out of that world's system that has kept us in bondage. Um, Colossians 1.13 in the New Testament tells us that. It says, He hath delivered us out of the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. So we have been transferred out of one kingdom and transferred into another kingdom. Legally, every believer, legally that applies to every believer, but every believer doesn't know that. Every believer doesn't have revelation of that and that every believer doesn't know how to walk in that. So the kingdom of God is our land of promise. For the Israelites, it was a geographical location. Uh, today, Israel only has a tiny, tiny fraction of that land in their possession that God originally gave to, 
to Abraham, a tiny sliver. And even the whole world's trying to pressure them into giving that away. But um, uh, in, uh, you don't have to turn there, but uh, write down Hebrews 11, 23 to 26. Uh, I'll, I'll just read that to you. Speaking of Moses, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, you know, is the great chapter on faith. It says, by faith, Moses, when he uh, was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, what this means is, um, you know, God delivered uh, his people out of Egypt, but it took a long time for them to get Egypt out of them, out of their thinking. You know what I mean? Uh, we have been delivered out of Egypt, so to speak. We've been delivered out of the land of, of not enough. But for many Christians, uh, in their thinking, they still live in the land of not enough. They hadn't got Egypt out of them. They hadn't got that mentality out of them. Uh, you know, I've heard older people here uh, talk about the war years. Uh, some of you may have been tiny, tiny little children <laughs> during the war, but I've heard older people talk about it. And I think the rationing here was much more severe than it was in America. And uh, I've heard people talk about you could only get fish and chips once a week, and when you could, the queue would be like out to the road to even get a portion of fish and chips, you know. There were so lots of things rationed. You had to have coupons to even get them. And so uh, a lot of that mentality, though, has carried over. These people still kind of live that way, you know, because that got so ingrained in them even when the war was over and they began to have plenty, they still scrimped and scraped, you know, because they still had this uh, rationing, uh, insufficiency, not enough mentality that constrained them, you know, and, and a lot of people, they live that way all their life once, once they've had to uh, endure those kinds of conditions. But when it says Ma uh, Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, uh, he was getting Egypt out of him. He, he began to no longer identify with Egypt. He no longer identified himself with Egypt or anything connected to Egypt. Uh, he began to identify uh, with the Israelites because he was. He began to identify as with the Israelites and God's people who had a covenant with God. He no longer identified with Egypt and what it represented. So that's what he was doing when he said, no, don't refer to me as Pharaoh's, uh, uh, the daughter, uh, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter anymore. I, I'm an, uh, an Israelite. I have a covenant with God. So he was getting that old uh, mentality out of him. He refused to hang on to anything that was going to keep him out of God's best. Now over in the Exodus 14, Exodus 14, verse 8. 
It says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. Now the NIV says, The children of Israel who were marching out boldly. They marched out boldly. They weren't just, you know, woe is us. You know, we're sure glad to be getting out of here. You know? It's been a hard 400 years, you know. No, it says they marched out boldly. And we're going to have to make some bold decisions. I'm taking off the robe of tradition. I'm taking off the robe of not having enough. I'm going to believe the word and go for God's best in my life, no matter what the Egyptians say and no matter what the other Christians say. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Write this down. It is impossible for you to be the Christian God intends you to be having just enough. I'll go over it again. It is impossible... For you to be the Christian, God intends you to be having just enough. Now, let's turn to Deuteronomy 8. We're setting the foundation here in this first session. Deuteronomy 8, verse 7. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey. A land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Underline those two words. Without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God, for the good land which he hath given thee. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses, notice houses is plural, more than one house, and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thy hast is multiplied. Notice in verse 12 and 13, it doesn't say, uh, you know, if, if you build goodly houses, if you eat and are full, if your herds and flocks multiply, if your silver and gold multiplies. No, it says when. When your silver and gold is multiplied, when you've built goodly houses, when you've eaten and you're full. Don't forget the Lord your God. 
So in the Old Covenant, God expected his people to increase and multiply. This was expected of God's people in the Old Covenant. God expected them to increase and multiply. This land con uh, included no scarceness. Uh, everything, everything we do should increase. This is not a picture of having just enough. This is a big picture of having more than enough. So don't ever pray again for God to give you just enough. So let's start generating some spiritual energy from the Word. And we're going to demolish this wall of containment and move forward in our finances. Amen? Now let's turn to Ecclesiastes 5. It's right after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 5. Verse 18. Behold that which is good. Sorry. Behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth. Notice God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. Amen. Say this out loud. There is nothing wrong, nothing wrong. With, me and my with me and my family living the good life. The good life. Amen. Hallelujah. Can you begin to recognize Satan's battle of containment in your mind. It's a subtle, it's a subtle thing. It's difficult for many to grasp just having a lo uh, enough, let alone more than enough. It's the world's method to how people operate in insufficiency, want, and shortage. Uh, the only shortages in this earth are man-made, manipulated. Uh, shortages to keep the price up. It has to do with supply and demand. I don't know all about the worldly economics, but it has to do with supply. You know, the lower the su supply and the greater the demand, the more you can put the price up and make people pay for it, you know. So it, that's what it's all about. But we're in a different kingdom. Uh, in John 18:36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. So we are in the world, but we are not of this world. We're really citizens of heaven, and God has a different system uh, for us, and it's based on heaven's supply. John 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. The Amplified Translation says, have and enjoy life in abundance to the full till it overflows. Now the word abundantly, these are some other words uh, 
I guess synonyms for abundantly, from, translated from the Greek word, abundantly, superabundance, excessive, overflowing, surplus, over and above, more than enough, profuse, extraordinary, above the ordinary, more than sufficient. Is there anything in that that sounds like having just enough? And it's God's will for us to just have it out, just have our needs met, and that's it. No? Uh, have you heard of Leroy Thompson? He's, he's a good preacher on uh, prosperity. He's, um, he has a church in America. He's been on Brother Copeland's broadcast a couple of times in the past. But this is kind of his translation of John 10, verse 10. I have come that you might have the God kind of life, life as God has it, and that you have it on the most abundant level possible. Amen? Amen. That you have it on the most abundant level possible. Hallelujah. The lifestyle God has chosen for us is His abundance. The good life is your portion, and it is the gift of God. Now, some Christians would say, well, if wealth, uh, you know, and the good life are God's gifts, then why don't I have them? Well, we've kind of talked about that in the past. Uh, we see in, uh, you, you can write these scriptures down. We won't turn there. Exodus 6, verse 8. Numbers 13, 1 to 2. Uh, Deuteronomy 11, 8. You know, talks about how it was God's will for them to go in the land, but God could not persuade them to go. You know, what, uh, you know, God gave the land to Israel, but they had to fight to possess it. What God had, and what God has given us and provided for us by grace, we have to possess it by faith. It's not just automatic. Uh, back there in uh, Numbers, in the Old Testament, you know, God, we've already read how God promised that land to them, but there were other people living there. There were already other people living there. Now, just because other people were living there, that didn't change what God said. <laughs> that didn't change the fact that God said, I've given you this land. Those other people were just occupying it at the time. Other people were living on Israel's land. Uh, and by faith, you know, they, they had to go and possess it, and, and they wouldn't. But God has set aside a portion of the world's wealth for us, and in order for us to possess it, we have to go in and fight and take it. And that's what Israel wasn't willing to do. Now, the next generation went in, and they took the land. So that proves it wasn't the giants that were keeping them out, because the next generation went in and took it. It was up here that kept them out. So other people were living on Israel's land. It required them to go fight and, and possess what was theirs. Guess what? The world has our money. And we've got to possess it. This is not an armed 
conflict, but spiritually, we got to possess what belongs to us, just like Israel had to possess what God said belonged to them. God wants us to control the wealth of the world and not live in Egypt subordinate to it like Israel was in Egypt. <coughs> Matthew eleven twelve. Jesus said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Again, this is not talking about a military conflict. This is spiritual warfare. This is warfare in the spirit. There are enemies to your faith. Uh, the God's Word translation says, The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful people have been seizing it. Amen? So we have to be forceful people. In other words, this is not, these are not passive people. We can't just be passive and just say, well, it's all up to God. If God wants me to have it, I'll have it. No, we've, we've already talked about that a lot in the past. Money is the last stronghold Satan has over the body of Christ. That is the only area he still has control of that stands before us that we have to possess. That's the last area Satan has any control of in the body of Christ. The wealth of the world belongs to God's people, but right now, most of it is in the hands of unbelievers. In other words, there are other people occupying our land just like there were other people occupying Israel's land in the Old Testament. It's God's intention that we control the wealth of this world. Uh, back to Deuteronomy 8 again. Sorry to have you turning back and forth, but it's kind of going to be that way today. Deuteronomy 8, 18. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God. This is after he'd said, when your flocks and herds are multiplied, when your gold and silver's multiplied when you built goodly houses. Then he says in verse 18, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. Okay, let's just stop right there. This, this already, this verse goes against what most of us have been taught all of our life, doesn't it? If you've been to church for very long in your life, <laughs> Some people didn't grow up in church, but if you grew up going to church, this verse goes against probably everything you've already been taught. We've already mentioned that one of our enemies is tradition. It's an enemy of faith. And in order to move forward in the area of finances, we're going to have to violently press against this tradition and all the restraints of Satan that make you question the, valid the validity of God's word. So we have the power to get wealth, and that power has been given to us by God. That's what the scripture says. Let's say this out loud. I have been given power to get wealth by God. Amen. So if this is what God says about you, you can say this about you. But the word has to move from the pages 
of the Bible into here. Amen. It's got to move off these pages into here. And you do that by hearing it, reading it, speaking it, thinking about it, applying it to your situation. That's kind of what we call meditating on the Word is when you begin to apply it to your situation. And you can come to the place where you know that you know this is true just like you know that you know you're saved. You can know that you know you're healed. Every area of life, the more uh, revelation you have uh, about that area of your life, the more revelation you have from God's Word, uh, the more you can walk in that. The more you can walk in that, that area. And you come to the place where you know you, that you know it's true and nobody can talk you out of it. Just like nobody could talk you out of the fact that you're saved. You're established in that. And, and we can become just as established in all the other areas of the Bible. So we have to understand the total context of this verse. The power to get wealth goes beyond our personal motives. God wants us, he wants to give us luxuries. His word plainly states he wants us to have the best and to represent him in a way that brings glory and honor to him. But, you know, if you stop there and your only motive for wealth is for your own benefit, then you've missed it. It's like throwing away the pearl and keeping the oyster. Uh, you know, you, the, the Bible says... Um, we're ambassadors of Christ. We're God's representatives on the earth. We're reflection of Him. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about, uh, you take, uh, like, the poorest country in the world, which I don't know exactly what that would be, but let's say Haiti or some country like that. would That'd be close to one of the poorest countries in the world. I mean, those people live in shacks. They wear rags. I mean, they're poor as dirt. But you take the ambassador to Haiti, the ambassador to Great Britain, do you think he lives that way? No. He doesn't live like the people in Haiti live. He wears fine clothes, and he lives in one of the nicest houses in London. Even though he represents that country, because he represents that country, he can't turn up in London looking like everybody else back home. You know what I mean? He, he's, he represents that country on a high level, even though that's not a reality in the country that he's representing, his, his standard of living. But we're representing God. So we should be representing God in a way that brings glory and honor to him and that, and that we don't misrepresent God with all this poverty uh, teaching and, and so forth. That's a misrepresentation of the God that we serve. Just have to read the Bible. It seems to be there are two extremes in the body of Christ that God only wants you to have enough to personally get by. And then there's another extreme where people begin, you know, to, to uh, learn that God wants us to have more than enough that God has given us the power to get wealth and they go the other direction and then they go out and they start trying to add all these things to themselves and they run up credit card bills and all this stuff that's not that's not prospering in God that's just trying to add stuff to yourself 
And, and both of those camps are wrong. We're supposed to be right down the middle. Both of those uh, areas of thought are wrong. So this is why we have to understand prosperity in its proper context. Now in verse 18, why has he given us the power to get wealth? It says that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers, as it is this day. The old covenant only provided material and physical blessings. They only had the promise of spiritual redemption. It was not a reality. Those people were never going to be born again because Jesus hadn't come yet. But they had the promise of it. They, they said there's one coming that's going to provide redemption for us. And then in that context, uh, many of the offerings and the sacrifices in the Old Covenant, they're all types of redemption that point to what Jesus was going to do on the cross. Like Isaiah 53 Five, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's all a prophecy concerning Jesus going to the cross. So they had healing as a provision in the context of what Jesus was going to do in the future. We have healing in what Jesus has done in the past. So, so but under the, the uh, Old Testament, Naturally, they only had the provision, the promise of spiritual, of physical and material blessings. Now, um, so they couldn't be born again. Now, what is the covenant he's talking about here? Turn to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. We're going to read the covenant. God made with Abraham. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Here is the covenant. Number one, I will make you a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. Number three, I will make your name great. Did God do it? Well, look at the next chapter. 13, verse 2. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. Sounds like he did it, didn't he? Amen. Uh, chapter 17. God reaffirms this covenant again. In uh, God, God talks to Abraham again in ch chapter 17, verse 2, And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and their generations. Everybody say, this is my generation. This is my generation. Amen. This was not just to Abraham and his uh, sons. 
and grandsons. It says generations in the future come under this covenant. Now, as believers, New Testament believers, Galatians 3.29 says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? This promise. Amen. This promise. So we, we have been engrafted into this. We have the blessings of Abraham plus spiritual redemption. Now, um, if I held up a 100-pound note in this hand and a 50-pound note in this hand, which is better? The 100-pound note. Why? Because it contains the 50 plus. Amen? It contains the 50 plus more. Now, why is a new covenant better than the old covenant because we have everything God promised the old covenant people plus spiritual redemption. We have all the material and physical blessings promised to the old covenant people plus the spiritual redemption that they were only promised. That they, it was never a reality for them. We've got the whole thing folks. We got the whole hundred pound note. That's why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Now, what God expects from us, get out of the world system. God wants us to depend on him to bless us instead of depending on the world's economic base. Do you really think God wants the state of the world's economy to affect us personally? Do you really think God wants every economic slump or every increase in inflation or increase in interest rates to disrupt the ministry of the church? No. Everybody say, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> Number two, he wants us to be a blessing. This was the other part of Genesis 12. Uh, uh, verse 2, and thou shalt be a blessing. So, God wants us to use blessings to become a blessing. God's calling us to go beyond our own personal blessings and become a blessing. And when we use our God-given power to get wealth, to finance God's kingdom and God's purposes first, then Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, all these other things you need and want, what you eat, what you wear, what you drive, what you live in, shall be added to you. So there's a priority of putting God's things first. And then all these other things will be added to you. Then we don't have to add them to ourselves. And that's where a lot of people get into trouble. They start trying to add these things to themselves and they get in debt and a lot of things like that. When God adds them to you, they will be paid for. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah. You won't have to pay the bank twice what it's worth. And there's a special group of people who've decided that they want to be included in this special group, and I believe that's the people in this room. Amen? Amen. 
We want to be in this group through our obedience to the covenant. We're going to use the blessings of God uh, that he's given us to bless, bless, bless. And we will faithfully operate the power to get wealth by God. We will do it by consistently planting our tithes and offerings into the good ground of Christ honoring church, churches and ministries. Through the laws of the harvest, planting, sowing, growing, reaping, God has given us the power to get wealth. That's how he's given us the power to get wealth. One of the, the major ways is through tithes and offerings. That's his system of getting wealth to us. What the main system doesn't mean you can quit your job, <laughs> but that's uh, that's God's way, His primary way. Now, uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen, Jesus said, "And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come." Uh, I was visiting a church once, and I won't say where it was, but it was in Surrey. And um, within the first 10, this was kind of the preacher's main verse, and within the first 10 minutes of him preaching, and he was talking about this verse, he made the statement, Israel has no place at all in God's end time plan. <laughs> he said, this is it right here. God's end time plan is Matthew 24. The kingdom shall be preached and all the world is a witness and the end shall come. End of story. And I had to hold on to my chair to keep from falling off because I thought I was surprised I mean, I mean, I know that's prevalent, but in this particular church, I was a little bit surprised to hear that. But uh, I, I'm sure that's what they were taught at Bible school, so that's what came out, you know. But uh, as we we know, the word says different. Amen. You can't just take one verse and build a doctrine on it. But there are more people alive on earth today than at any other time in history. Satan knows that when the church is properly funded, it's going to be the end for the kingdom of darkness. And like I said, money is the last area of control Satan has over the body of Christ and over individual Christians. The end time revival will take vast sums of money and it's not just going to be accomplished by sacrificial giving alone. The scale of financing this revival is going to require almost all of the wealth uh, of the earth to accomplish. And where is most of the earth's wealth today? In the hands of the wicked, in the unbelievers, the hands of unbelievers. The world has it. Egypt has it. In other words, it's not in the church. Amen? It's not in the hands of Christians. This evangelization of the world is going to require more money than the church and its members now control. Satan has deceived us into believing 
that there is insufficiency in the world and that we must live all of our lives in that insufficiency. Um, I don't want to get off into this because I don't know a whole lot about it, but have you heard of this Agenda 21? Okay. Well, it's a, um, it's been around since the 1980s. It's one of these one world order type um, plans put forth by the United Nations. It's been signed by 200 countries. Uh, I think the first President Bush in America signed it and Bill Clinton began to take active steps to implement it in America. And basically it's uh, where, and, and it, folks this operates under the radar. It's happening right now, we're just not aware of it. Uh, part of this agenda involves climate change. Uh, beware of the phrases sustainable development. <laughs> That's part of Agenda 21. But basically what it means is the governments of the world will take inventory and control over all energy, all construction, all land, all water, all minerals, all resources. People, the idea is to drive people off their private land. Government will be able to take private land away from people, private ownership, um, through what's called eminent domain. I don't know, do you have that phrase here? Eminent domain, okay. In America, it's used in real estate, uh, and it means that the government can take uh, private land from private people for public uses, but they have to compensate the owners. Like, you know, whoever owned this land out here at one time, when they said, we're going to build the A3 here, they, had to comp they would have to compensate the people for taking that land. That's imminent, called eminent domain, but now, the government can make eminent domain whatever they want it to be, basically. It's not necessarily. So they can say, we're taking your land and we're going to give it to, we're going to build some condos here because it's better for the community development. And this is already, it's already happening, it's happening under the radar. I think one of the acts here in England is called the Localism Act. That's part of this, um, and it's to it's to uh, take ownership. Um, it, it involves education. I mean, every area of life, and uh, it's all people are losing their uh, personal rights for the better of the community. Okay, that's kind of a general overview, and it's all part of this. Uh, insufficiency, you know, the planet's being destroyed and humans are causing it. Humans are the bad guys and if we can just get rid of the humans, we can save the planet. And, and part of this agenda is not, is not just population control, but what they call depopulation. So what are kind of getting rid of people, basically, you know, we can save the planet. And it's all kind of part of this plan called Agenda 21. It's an official uh, UN document. It's been signed by 200 countries, and I'm sure this country's probably 
signed up for it because I think there's already one of these projects going on in Kent. I think there's a big deal over it down there about building these, what do they call it? Uh, I don't know, you know, these jargon community something development plan or something. It's about uh, putting people in densely populated areas in cities and things like that. Uh, you know, you don't need a back garden. You don't need a back garden. We can put, um, you know, we can put some high-rise apartments because it's more efficient. This, this is the thinking, you know. Um, so anyway, and this is all propagated by the news media, this, this lack and insufficiency mentality. So uh, I, think, I think we'll stop there for our first session and we'll take a little break. So we're, we're, setting, uh, we're setting a foundation to continue talking about uh, the wealth transfer, amen?